As you're seated, why don't you find your Bible and open to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we will be concluding this particular chapter today, Acts 18, verses 24 and following. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. As always, grateful to open up God's Word with you. Um, If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible so that you can follow along as we continue to track with the early church, God's Spirit, as uh, Jesus is moving among the church in the early first century uh, here. Today we want to talk about growing. We want to talk about what it means to be transformed, what it it means to become uh, perhaps who you were called to be. And the interesting thing about growth is everybody wants to grow, just nobody wants to be uncomfortable. Everybody wants to become something greater. We just don't want it to be costly. As, as one uh, great hymn used to put it, is that everybody wants to go to heaven, just nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to be in this space of goodness, of perfection, of life, and of love, of growing, of transformation. We just don't want it to be hard. See, this is a deeply problematic for the follower of Jesus because literally everything that Jesus teaches us about growth goes right through struggle, goes right through suffering, goes right through difficulty. And the reason is is because I think that in our modern mindset, we believe that growing is about adding to, not getting rid of. It's about adding to more information, more experience, more friends, more diverse uh, friends, more diverse experiences. But what the Bible teaches is that growth happens, and, and no doubt life happens through death and rebirth. When Jesus is confronted by one of the religious leaders of the first century, a man named Nicodemus, Jesus introduces this idea of being born again. If you remember the story from John 3, it was deeply confusing to Nicodemus. To be born again was problematic. He said, should I enter into the womb a second time and be reborn, right? And I think there's something very human about Nicodemus' struggle with that illustration, something that many of us who have been tracking with Jesus for a long time just sort of move past. Yeah, I've heard of the rebirth, I'm born again, and it becomes this kind of vernacular that we don't work through or or wrestle with anymore. But there's something incredibly helpful in that for us. What Jesus is speaking about there is not just birth, but all of growth. Because how you are made is how you are matured. How you are made is how you are matured. And therefore, something like even in marriage, we become married, my wife and I became married, because we made a covenant with one another. And the more we are dependent upon that covenant, look to that covenant, the more husband and wife we become. Similarly with Christ, is that the more we understand how we became a Christian by grace, through faith, for his glory, and our joy, the more we understand that, the more we grow to become like Jesus. See, the way that we are made is the way that we mature. What this means in our everyday relationship with Jesus is that it's a constant putting to death and a putting on of life. A putting to death sin and the old habits, the old way, and a putting on of the new self that is Jesus Christ. And again, this is deeply troubling to the modern mind. Let me take you to three graduation commencement addresses given by three different popular celebrities. Ellen DeGeneres told a recent graduating crowd, my advice to you, I know some of you are not Ellen, not Ellen, my advice to you is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. Chef Mario Batali shared with a similar group of graduates, follow your own truth expressed consistently by you. Journalist Anna Quindlin 
had uh, this to say, have the courage to honor your character, your intellect, your inclinations, and yes, your soul by listening to its clear, clean voice instead of following the muddled messages of a timid world. Now, isn't it true for some of us, like, well, that kind of sounds right. That kind of sounds good. That kind of sounds like that's how and that's what life is meant to be about. See, the entertainment, culinary, and intellectual world all agree. Becoming and growing is about giving in more and more to the little voice inside each of our personhoods. The true person needs to be unleashed from within. You see, nobody needs to die. Nobody needs to be uncomfortable. You simply need to become who you already are. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to grow. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable. We have much to decry and disassociate with this particular worldview today. And fortunately, the good news is up to the task. The gospel, Jesus Christ, is up to the task. Today, we're going to look at a man named Apollos. He was educated. He was a teacher. He was being used by God to extend the kingdom. However, he still needed to grow. Church, let me just tell you from the outset, you still need to grow. And it's not going to be comfortable, right? Some of us sitting, we got that moleskin journal ready. Just need a couple little nuggets, a couple little nuggets today, and I will grow tomorrow. They're like little Jesus vitamins I need to take today in order to become something tomorrow. I would like to, for your joy, put that to death today and point to a better way of becoming. Look at Acts chapter 18, verse 24 through 28. It reads this way. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. A competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are coming to you today, not because we need a little tweak, not because we need to edit, not because we just need to memorize another pithy statement of morality, but because we need resurrection. We need transformation. We need to be constantly reminded that we have been taken out of darkness and into light. Therefore, we do not need to dabble in the dark anymore. We're coming to you because daily, though we may be in Christ, we wrestle and are at war with the flesh in many respects, tempted regularly to neglect the new life that Jesus has purchased and given to us the righteousness that he has imputed and imparted to us. And so we pray, Father, help us. Help us in this moment not just to put on things that feel nice and good. Help us to put to death the things that are killing us. Reveal those things even to us. Father, I need help in this. I don't always know what I'm believing. I don't always know what I'm trusting. I don't always know what is causing anxiety 
frustration, pain, anger, sadness, sorrow deep within my spirit. And so we, I desire to trust your spirit more today to reveal those things to me, to reveal those things to my brothers and sisters. And so, Father, I pray you'd use Apollos' life to direct us to Jesus today. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Priscilla and Aquila. It's not about Paul and what's going on with these characters. It's that they are all signposts to point us to the author and perfecter of our faith. So would you fix our eyes on Jesus? Would you do that through your word? Would you do that on your own merits? Because you are good, you are faithful, you are loving, you are kind. We ask that you would do that for our joy and your glory. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So now we're in Ephesus. Ephesus is the third stop for us in a list of three major cities uh, that Paul and his team will go to. We've been to Athens, and then we went to Corinth, and here we come to Ephesus, three not only large cities, but important cities of culture, of trade, of power in the early uh, ancient world. And the first thing that Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us about what's happening in Ephesus is that there is a new missionary, a new preacher, a new evangelist whose name is Apollos. Look at verse 24 with me. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Luke tells us a lot about Apollos. He packs in a lot within just a couple of verses here. First, he tells us about his ethnicity. He is Jewish. This is noteworthy for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Paul has recently shook off this responsibility, quite literally, from preaching and proclaiming the gospel to Jews first. But now here comes a Jew giving us a picture that though Paul may be weary of communicating the gospel to Jews, God is not. Though Paul may be shaking off this robe and saying, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles, God is faithfully working to reveal his good, pleasing, and perfect will to Israel. Secondly, Jews remain a primary community of gospel growth. This is where we will continue to see more men and women by grace, through faith, pursue, acknowledge, trust in Jesus. See, though Paul may be struggling to give recurring opportunities, our God continues to be faithful, to clearly articulate the gospel through Apollos and others to the Jews. Secondly, furthermore, what we find out is that Apollos is a native of Alexandria. Alexandria is a very interesting uh, city in the first century, second largest in the Roman Empire, and they built this city as an intellectual and cultural powerhouse. They built the city around a museum that had over 400,000 books in it, a library within this museum, over 400,000 books. So it's not surprising to know that Jewish scholars actually from this particular place produced one of the most important documents in human history, the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures took place in Alexandria. This is a prominent and important city, and it's where Apollos is from. So it's not surprised you come from a smart city, you're smart. This dude is brilliant. This dude loved reading. This was the guy that instead of sitting at a coffee shop and staring off into nothing, he's like reading books and mag. He's got like stacks of things there, right? And you know that's not like him just reading something, waiting for a person to come, but that's like he's talking to the author personally. He has an incredible relationship with information this way. Luke tells us also he's eloquent. He's competent in the scriptures. Do you notice this? He's instructed in the way of the Lord. Please notice this. 
He doesn't just come with eloquence, though. He doesn't just come with a well-crafted sermon. See, many of us believe if I just had the exact right words to say, then something would happen. If I just had the right sermon, if I could just copy and paste something that I heard perfectly, that would be where the power What we see here in Apollos is that there's a bigger picture of what holiness and power looks like. He's living in obedience. He's a follower of Jesus. We're not merely called to be well-versed saints who are ready to say something the exact right way. We are meant to present our lives. We are meant to be people of the book, not just people that have memorized it, but people that live it. We are people holy and set apart for God's purposes. And this is what we see in Apollos, not just a learned man, but a useful man for God's kingdom purposes. This type of knowledge that he has, knowledge in the Lord, is not merely intellectual. It's the word competent. Do you see it used there in verse 25, or rather 24? It comes from the Greek, Greek word where we get the word dynamite. It's about power. It's not just linguistic prowess, not just an ability to say something, but it's an ability to speak with power, right? Apollos' life was that to know God and to learn things about God, not merely as an ascent to cognitive understanding, but to be empowered by God's Spirit. See, this information was just that, information. But when the Spirit of God makes the truth of God alive within one of God's people, that is a dynamic force in the first century and in the 21st century. And so what Luke tells us is he's fervent in the Spirit. Oh, church, are you fervent in the Spirit? Or is the Spirit just something you hear about every now and then, someone you hear about every now and then? Because ultimately, all of the education in the world is powerless if you are not filled with God's Spirit. And here's the good news. If you are filled with the Spirit, you don't need all of the information. You don't need all of the knowledge that there is to know in the world. You've got all you need in God's Spirit to be effective for His purposes. That's good news for me, and I heard at least one other person who that was good news for them too. Notice the growth now of Apollos. It was not just in knowledge, but in holiness. Oh, that we would crave that. That we wouldn't just crave to know more, but to become more like Christ. This is the picture that we're given of Apollos. Not just experience, but transformation. Luke gives us a holistic picture of him. He wants us to see that Apollos is not merely intellectual, nor is he simply a man of good repute, but he is both of these things and an effective teacher. He spoke and taught about Jesus accurately. Within this character, though, Luke's not going to let us get it twisted. Apollos isn't perfect. Look what Luke now writes, immortalizes in the scriptures, but though he only knew the baptism of John. Well, what's this mean? Because it's like, look how great he is, but he only knows this. What exactly does that mean? When we look at the baptism of John, we know that John's baptism was one of repentance and of anticipation of Jesus coming. Flip to the left to Matthew chapter 3, or type Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Matthew chapter 3, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the Gospels. Acts is the next book, so flip to the left, four books of the Bible, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of God, or heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Skip down to verse 11. Verse 11. 
Matthew chapter 3 still. I baptize you, John says, with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, what John is saying is my baptism is nothing compared to the baptism that is coming. My my baptism pales in comparison to the baptism that Jesus will give to his people. So John's baptism, as he even understood it, as even John understood it, was one of preparation. He was not baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. He was not baptizing for the filling of the Holy Spirit. He understood this would be a baptism, a mark of the new covenant that only Jesus would be able to inaugurate. John, rather, came as the forerunner to Jesus. He's not wrong in his understanding the way that he baptized. And so Apollos is not wrong in his understanding. Please hear this. He's not wrong in his understanding. He's merely incomplete. He's merely incomplete in his understanding. This is further explored in the preceding work of Paul to Ephesus. Flip back to Acts. Acts chapter 19 now. Acts chapter 19 verses 3 to 5. Let's give you a little preview of next week. And all God's people were eager for such a thing. Look at verse 3 in chapter 19. And he said, it's Paul, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So even Paul understands the sort of landscape here. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul affirms Matthew's articulation through Jesus of what he records of baptism. John's baptism was for repentance and anticipation of Christ. New covenant baptism fulfills John's baptism and what it anticipated. And I believe Apollos' incomplete knowledge of baptism was the basis of the following interaction. So let's look at this in verse 26, Acts chapter 18. Apollos is faithful, performing the task of preaching and teaching Jesus, and here come Priscilla and Aquila. You remember them? Here come Priscilla and Aquila, verse 26. He, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Oh, this is going to be good, right? we got a gospel confrontation on our hands. Remember, Priscilla and Aquila are this dynamic couple in the first century. Not only were they in Rome, but also in Corinth and now in Ephesus. They used their home as the place where a new church would sort of germinate and grow, and they were house church planters. They became incredibly helpful to Paul's ministry, and so he greets them, Paul does, in Romans 16. He greets them in 2 Timothy. They are affirmed for their hospitality. They are affirmed for their gospel orientation. They are affirmed for their willingness to be used by God to see the church thrive in very difficult places. So Priscilla and Aquila are not a couple you mess with. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Apollo speaking in the synagogue that day, seeing Priscilla and Aquila come in? He goes, oh, I better be on my best behavior. They've got a direct line to Paul. They are the ones who have traveled all over the place. I've heard of them. Priscilla and Aquila come to Ephesus. They hear Apollo's teaching. Paulus is preaching boldly. He's not pump faking in the paint. He's not hesitating. He's giving his best address, right? He is preaching his guts out. They heard him, but they sensed they needed to talk with him afterwards. I have been there, by the way. It's very uncomfortable. 
You step down, you're just like, I just preached my guts out. Hopefully the people will receive that. Hopefully God will use it. And you sit down with your dad. And your dad looks at you and you just go, I love you, son. You're like, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be good. (laughs) What did I do? I'm like going back. I'm sorry. Just give me a second. My dad was very kind. They think that they need to sit down and talk, Priscilla and Aquila, with Apollos to clarify some of the things that they heard. So what lies within verse 26 is an incredible blueprint for us, if you will, about how you and I, as believers in Christ, as brothers and sisters, ought to have what I'll simply call gospel confrontations. How we should address one another in gospel confrontations. I'll I'll define it this way. Gospel confrontation is humble correction we extend to our brothers and sisters on the grounds of the gospel. Gospel confrontation is humble correction we extend to our brothers and sisters on the grounds of the gospel for the sake of the gospel when we see they are living and thinking out of step with the gospel. Are you picking up on the repetition of words here? Gospel confrontation is humble correction we extend to our brothers and sisters on the grounds of the gospel for the sake of the gospel when we see they are not living or thinking in step with the gospel. Christians are meant to walk with one another, not as passive or permissive acquaintances, but rather as fierce family members who care for one another's souls, speaking the truth in love. You and I face similar situations all the time, and here's what I believe is a biblical approach for us as brothers and sisters when we see a need for gospel confrontation. Look, look back at verse 26. What's the first thing that they do? They heard him. Let that settle. They heard him. In other words, it's highly instructive for us that the couple does not come to them and go, Paulus, we got an email while we were in Corinth about what you said or about what you did, and now we're going to address it with you. They heard him first. They listened to him first. They were sure to hear them themselves. Isn't it true that we are tempted all the time to presume, to assume to hear one random thought from one random person tell ourselves an entire story with plot, climax, and resolution about somebody and come full throttle with what we believe is truth for their good and we haven't listened to them for a second. Priscilla and Aquila first hear Apollos personally. We should do the same. Secondly, they took him aside. They took him aside. There is correction that happens not in public, but in private. A theme we see in Acts, and really the whole of the New Testament, is that correction for unrepented sin happens in public. Correction with brothers and sisters who have this humility about them, a misinformation, unintentionality in what they have said. This takes place in private. Priscilla and Aquila show kindness to Apollos, and instead of standing there yelling at him from their seats, they wait for him to finish, they talk with him, and they clarify either a misunderstanding or an incomplete understanding of his gospel presentation. So they heard him, they took him aside, and thirdly, they explained to him. Priscilla and Aquila take the role of a teacher, not a judge and a disciplinarian. They take the roles of teachers here who care for the development. In other words, they didn't just want to make sure they said the right thing back to the Apollos. They wanted to make sure what they said was for Apollos' good. Am I preaching to you yet? That he understood it. 
that he had time to be trained and equipped in this thing. The inaccuracies they observed in Apollos were not opportunities for them to jump on him and to prove how they were more mature than him, more, more learned than him, more equipped than him. They weren't going to show themselves to be morally superior to Apollos. They were going to condescend themselves in a moment to teach and explain rather than to be seen to help him see their love and help for their brother so that he could grow. They heard him, they took him aside, they explained to him, keeping in mind, fourthly, it was about accuracy. It was about accuracy. This is where I need to hear this this morning. Their desire in correcting him was about the way of God and the accuracy of the gospel. This was not motivated and informed by personal preference or personal opinion. They saw inconsistencies, an incomplete delivery of the gospel, most likely, especially in relationship with baptism and the Holy Spirit and the new covenant. It was about the gospel. It wasn't like we don't really like the way that you said this and the way that we receive the gospel better is when you articulate it like this or this is the way we say it. This is what we would prefer that you focus on. They didn't do that. They focused on the accuracy of the gospel, not their personal preference and opinion. Help us with this, Lord. Though their correction was very important and the content vital, I think, to Apollos' mission, it's not the main thing to consider here, what they were correcting, what they were delivering accuracy about. I think what we should pay much closer attention to is the way that they deliver this and the heart behind it that is revealed. To help bring this into focus, let's think about some questions that you and I can ask to follow in the wake of a Priscilla and Aquila when we believe there's a gospel confrontation that one of our brothers and sisters is living out of step with the gospel. A number of questions that help to guide my thinking and I trust will help all of us. First, as it relates to hearing them, have I really heard them or am I assuming or am I just listening to hearsay? Slow down your response by simply asking, have I really heard this person or have I heard a person talk about this person who heard it from a person who heard it from their cousin? Secondly, what's the best way or place to bring this correction? Not whenever it's comfortable for me or when it's appropriate, when I can fit it on my account. When is the best way? What is the best way so that they can be heard? I'd like to give a spoiler alert. It's never on the internet. It's never on the internet. So if you go, oh, you know, I think the best thing is just to retweet it back to them. It's not. That is not the Spirit of God speaking to you. It's not in the comment session, section of Facebook. That is not the best way to bring gospel confrontation and correction. Thirdly, a question to ask ourselves. Is my heart in the posture of a brother and a sister or a sister, or is it that of a judge and a disciplinarian? Is my heart in the position of a brother or a sister, or is it in a place of a judge or a disciplinarian? In other words, am I being self-righteous? Fourthly, what I believe we need to ask, is my contention about the gospel and grounded in the Bible, or is it about my personal preference and my personal opinion? Is my contention about the gospel, or is it grounded in the Bible, or is it about my personal preference and personal opinion? Here's something to think about there. In order to have an understanding or a contention with someone or to desire to confront someone in the gospel or from the scriptures, you need to know the gospel and you need to know the scriptures. 
And therefore, if, if you're like, I'm, I'm not really sure, I'll just say it anyway. No, you need to get in the book. You need to, like, like Apollos, you need to be in the scriptures and understand. You need to orient yourself to the gospel that you might rightly be able to discern what is the voice of God and what is the voice of my own heart and my own disposition. Another disclaimer with this. Just because it's not a biblical issue doesn't mean you don't need to bring it up. Because I believe what can happen then is that we can harbor bitterness in a brother and sister and we'll say, it's not a biblical issue, it's not a big deal. And literally months later we're like, it's not a big deal, it's not a biblical issue, I can't find a verse, I'm not going to bring it up, right? Talk about it, but talk about it with a different posture. Like, I keep telling myself this story, or I continue to hear this about you, and I don't believe it's true. Can you help me understand? Coming to them and allow them to speak to that is deeply helpful and deeply instructive to our hearts. Priscilla and Aquila love Jesus and the gospel so much they are willing to have a hard conversation with Apollos. They love Apollos so much they are willing to risk their relationship forever having tension as a result of this. Aren't those the things that go on in your head? I'm going to bring this up and she's going to like always think I'm the crazy gospel theological dude. and Like I'm just going to be that person, right? Praise God if someone views you as the gospel person in their life. Praise God if they view you as the one who is constantly referring to the scriptures as your understanding of all things. We might be weary of the tension it might cause, but I believe when we come with a posture of a brother or sister like Priscilla and Aquila, we are coming as family, not as judge and disciplinarian. We become more the family that God has called us to be. See, we witness the maturation also here of Apollos. It's not just about a Priscilla and Aquila, but now Apollos has this opportunity. And notice the way that Luke tells this story. This is, this is fascinating. That the real maturity of Apollos is not in his eloquence, is not in his ability, it's not in his education, right? These are the things that we would esteem. He's a pretty mature father. Look at all of the things that he can do. The real maturity is about to be revealed. Not in what he can do with his ability, but how he receives God's truth in his own heart. Apollos' real maturity is seen in his humble receptivity to gospel correction from his sister and his brother. Uh, fellas, notice it came from his sister and his brother. Ladies, did you notice it came from his sister and his brother? Sometimes we block off our hearts and believe only men can critique men, only women can critique women. Last time I checked, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, we grow in the gospel together, not separately. See, gospel maturity ultimately is revealed here because gospel maturity is not about autonomy. It's about dependency. See, we have this wrong thinking about maturity, that maturity means I'm becoming more and more independent, more and more okay and interdependent within myself, less and less in need of God's word because I've memorized it, less and less in need of God's people because I'm better than them, less and less in need of God, right, because he already gave me the basics and now I'm off to the races. But Christian maturity is unlike any other maturity. It is an increase in dependency. It's an increase in holiness. It's an increase in Christ-likeness. Why is this true? Because the closer and closer I get to the light of Christ, the more and more the dark crevices and brokenness of my soul are exposed. See, the more mature I become, the less defensive I become because the more broken I understand that I am. The more mature I become, the more open I am to gospel confrontation. Why? Because the more I know I need the gospel, I didn't need the gospel as a seven-year-old only. I need it as a 10-year-old and a 36-year-old and a 77-year-old. I need the same gospel. 
But let's not get the story twisted. Priscilla and Aquila do not transform Apollos, right? Because humanistically, we can read the story. We all need each other. So bring that hard truth to each other, and we'll grow together. The scriptures don't tell us that. Nor will it be you and I, the ones who bring transformation to our brothers and sisters, right? We don't confront someone so that we can grow someone. We, we walk in humility so that God might do the great work of transforming the lives of our own family, the lives of my own soul, and the lives of my brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17 and 18 say it this way. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Transformation, growth, maturity, life are divine works of God's Spirit that produce freedom in His people. After all, what we are being transformed is away from dependency upon sinful things that are killing us and towards dependency on life-giving things, God and His Spirit. This is what a part of our rebirth is all about, that we would increase in our dependency on God's spirit, God's word, and God's people. If you show me a, a, a mature Christian, I will show you one who is dependent on God's spirit, who is dependent on his word, and is dependent on God's people. That is maturity. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 tells us this way, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in his people. He actually finds great joy in transforming the gospel within you. Do you know this? He actually loves it. He loves making his children glad in himself. Let's consider these three relationships, though. I think this will help us in understanding dependency. As we've said, that dependency is ultimately the picture of maturity. So how ought we to grow? We should grow in dependency upon God's spirit. We should grow in dependency upon God's word and grow in dependency upon one another. And this, in fact, is the way that the Lord is transforming us. It is through the gift of the spirit that we are regenerated. We are made new. We are made inhabitants, rather citizens of heaven, no longer just citizens of this world. It is the spirit of God that produces the fruit the picture, the symptom of a transformed life. Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice that through death comes life. Through crucifixion comes this fruit. We crucify the flesh, which gives birth to this spiritual transformation through God's Spirit. And notice, fruit is not plural. These are not multiple produce items. This is a single picture of produce of a single fruit that bears witness in all of these different qualities that God is changing us and has changed us to exemplify. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his timeless work, Mere Christianity. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright and stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a much smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. When God's Spirit is transforming you, he is making you more like Jesus. God transforms us by giving us his word. 
through ever-growing belief and familiarity with God's word, we become more like God. John 17 says, sanctify them in the truth, Jesus says. Your word is truth. Our sinful will is in opposition to God's will. Do you notice this? My will is not just like a little different than God's. It's like the opposite. It's the opposite. I want to move away from all suffering, difficulty, and he goes through the cross. His will is explicitly taught in and through his word. This is what the truth is. Therefore, when we come to God, when we come to his word, we are transformed by it and we learn to lay aside our will that leads to death and to pick up our cross, follow him, and to be conformed to his will. Pastor theologian John Piper puts this transformative power of God's word in this way in his book, Reading the Bible Supernaturally. Our Bible reading is never just for seeing, never just for learning and doctrine. It is not even just for savoring. It is if if that savoring is thought of in a private way that leaves us unchanged in our relationship with others. No, we read the Bible. We always read the Bible for the kind of seeing and savoring Christ that transforms us into his likeness. God gives us his spirit. He gives us his word. and church, he gives us each other. He gives us these things to change us and transform us. Through ever-growing belief and really connection with the church family, our brothers and sisters will transform us as well. This is a clear picture here in Acts 18. Apollos being bound to Priscilla and Aquila is transformed in relationship with them. See, we cannot be changed outside of the context of our relationship with the church. Why? Because our identity is collective. Our identity is bound up in one another. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are the house of God. We are a priesthood, a nation, the church. You see, we can never become more mature in Christ without each other because our identity is wrapped up in one another. Rosaria Butterfield put it this way in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert explaining this overlooked power of God's people. Let her words set in. I think that the church would be places of greater intimacy and growth in Christ if people stopped lying about what we need, what we fear, where we fail, and how we sin. I think that many of us have a hard time believing that God, the God that we believe in, when the going gets tough, And I suspect that instead of seeking counsel and direction from those stronger in the Lord, we retreat into our isolation and shame and let the sin wash over us, defeating us again. Or maybe we just muscle through it with pride. God transforms us through his spirit. He transforms us through his word. He transforms us together as a people. Some aspects of this transformation are immediate. When you come to Christ, his spirit, his word, and his people are yours in Christ. And yet other aspects of this take repetition, learning, obedience, and prayerfulness. These are all effective with increasing measure the more and more that we depend upon God and his spirit, his word, and his people. And here's what's at war in all of this. See, the Apostle Paul, when he writes back to Rome in Romans chapter 12, highlights this because there's a temptation for us not to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through dependency upon God, but to be conformed to the pattern of this world. There is a power in this world which transforms us and is transforming us into the likeness of this world rather than Jesus Christ. See, we always think, we think, I'm going to choose whether to be dependent or not. I'm going to choose whether or not to be transformed or not. It's not like that. 
You are dependent. You are being transformed. The question is, who are you dependent upon and what are you being transformed by? The whisper of the world is that you don't have to die. You don't have to give up anything to grow. In fact, what you have to do is give in. Just be you. Follow your truth. But notice Paul's words again in Romans that we present ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Holy and pleasing. This is our spiritual act of worship. See, you cannot follow the voice of this world and follow the voice of Jesus. They are competing realities. We grow by dying. We mature by depending. We are transformed through resurrection. Ultimately, this conforming is a result of our failure to depend upon God's spirit, God's word, and God's people because we become like what we depend upon. And in our sin, we are tempted to depend on our spirit, on our word, and our, our people. Let me break it down for us this way. Three different temptations as it relates to our dependency. We're tempted to depend on our flesh. This is revealed in our affection to follow our feelings and do whatever makes us happy rather than what makes us holy. The Bible teaches us that our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things, and yet every day we listen to them. We rather consider what we think to be supreme. In doing so, we fulfill countless proverbs that play the fool. The fool is one who listens to the inward longings of the soul and gives in to them. We are sinfully dependent upon our own word. This is revealed in our trust of our own logic, our own intellect, and our own ability, rather than God's word. When we face an opposition, when we face confrontation, usually our knee-jerk reaction, what do I think and feel about this situation, rather than what's God's word have to say about this? This is a confession, not an illustration, by the way. When I'm faced with a challenge of one of my children, I'm like, what do I think and what do I feel? When I'm faced with something at work and, and the task even of the, the church, I'm like, what do I think? What do I feel? What is my experience? And said, what does God's word say about this? The temptation is revealed constantly within me. See, instead of submitting to God's word, I submit to my own earthly wisdom. Thirdly, we sinfully depend upon our people. You know your people, right? Those who never question you. Those people you keep close, because you know if you go to them with something, they'll just pretty much say, well, what do you want? Do that. The people you keep close, your tribe, your posse, your girls, your guys, those people that you keep close, your people, who are merely passive permission givers, not brothers and sisters who speak truth and love to you. See, I think we gravitate towards these folks because of the other temptations in our life to gratify the flesh and to obey our own words. Here's the good news for us, church. We need the cross. Because I cannot put to death my temptation for my own glory. I cannot put to death my flesh. I cannot put to death my craving for my own word. I cannot put to death my longing to simply build a gallery for myself that affirms myself. What I need is a savior. See, Jesus alone is the one who is crucified and resurrected. The Lord who puts his spirit within us. The Lord who gives us his word. The Lord who makes us a people. This all takes place powerfully taking effect on the cross. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5 says, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. That's where transformation takes place. See, the good news of the gospel is that you no longer have to be tempted. You no longer have to give in to the temptation of the longings of your flesh, your word, and your people. You can be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You can truly grow. Jeremy Treat, pastor down in L.A. in his fabulous new book, Seek First, which I implore to you if you desire to understand the kingdom of God better. Treat summarizes the transformative power of the cross this way. The cross transforms us because it transfers us from death to life, from bondage to freedom, from shame to honor, from mourning to dancing, from darkness to light, from fear to faith, from ashes to beauty, from defeat to victory. Jesus transforms us through death. Therefore, the good news is not first. You can be alive and well today. The gospel is first. You can come die today. You can come die today and be risen to new life. See, before the good news is an invitation to find life in Jesus, it's an invitation to come and die to yourself. It's impossible to overstate the difference between the gospel of this age and the gospel of Jesus. All we hear around us is trust yourself, believe your truth, follow your passions. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. If you want to be transformed, become more dependent. If you want to become like Christ, you must depend upon Christ. Die to yourself. Die to your passions. Die to your desires. Die to your ambition. Die to your flesh. Die to your word. Die to your kind of people. And come alive by God's spirit. Come alive by God's word. Come alive as his people. So Paul could say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, before Jesus calls us to depend on the Spirit, his word, and his people, Jesus was the one who depended on the Spirit. Jesus is the one who depended on the word. Jesus is the one who made for himself a people. All his dependency led him to the cross. Therefore, your dependency will lead you to your death as well. But when we depend upon him, he brings us to life. Look at how our story concludes in verse 27 and 28. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. In short, Apollos used, was used mightily by Jesus and within the continued work of Jesus in this region. This is amazing because there was just this gospel confrontation where Apollos could have done a couple of things. One, just go, if my team doesn't like me, I'm leaving. Y'all trying to tell me I'm not perfect? Priscilla, Aquila, then you do it, right? This is how often we can respond when we're trusting in our own voice, our own flesh, our own people. He could have just said, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do my own thing. Said so he listens, revealing his true maturity. In particular, I think we see the result of the accuracy of the gospel proclamation because of Priscilla and Aquila's gospel confrontation. Paul will later famously say about Apollos that he watered the mission field that Paul planted, which the Lord ultimately caused to grow. 
Notice how Apollos is now showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. This full expression of a messianic understanding that Jesus is truly the one who satisfies. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. That Jesus is the fulfillment of everything anticipated, including the work of John the Baptist. Remember, Apollos wasn't wrong. He was incomplete in his gospel ministry. This is now the full effect, I believe, of God's spirit, God's word, and God's people. Oh, that we would be used like Apollos. But to be used like Apollos, we must be mature like Apollos, which means we must be dependent like Apollos. It was no doubt difficult for this missionary couple to say, okay, we've got to talk to him. It was no doubt difficult for Apollos to sit there and hear after he had just laid to bear his soul in front of those Jews. It's always challenging to confront our brothers and sisters in the gospel However, as those who have died to ourselves and been made alive in Jesus, this is how we grow. Together, dependent, surrendered. So church, do you want to grow? Become more dependent upon God's Spirit. Do you want to mature? Become more dependent upon God's Word. Do you want to become like Christ? Become more reliant upon His people, just like Jesus was. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness because in depending upon myself, I have announced that I am the Lord of my own life. Forgive me for this anti-gospel ethic that I so easily gravitate towards. On an everyday basis, trusting in my own wisdom, my own flesh, my own kind of people that merely appease me in my sin. Father, forgive us for not being the kinds of brothers and sisters that bring up truth with humility. Forgive us for being so silent when your spirit is revealing truth because we need to become holy. One day, Lord Jesus, you will present us, your church, to yourself without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. And the beauty of being your church now is that we begin to participate with your spirit in this cleansing in this purification, in this becoming mature in Christ, not as a one step leading to another, but as increased dependency in all things. Make us a dependent people, God. Not autonomous, self-guided and directed and empowered, but dependent, needy, reliant upon you that we might become the church you're calling us to be. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.